Well, good morning again, everyone. So glad that you're here worshiping at Hope Church. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm Greg Brady. I'm the pastor here and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, I would love to give you one. Uh, see me after the worship service and I'll get you a Bible. Um, let's just let's just dive right. Well, let's pray and then we'll We'll dive into this. Um, Father, um, your word is life. Your word is deep. We can build our life on, on your word. And that's what we want to do this morning. Help us as we as we look to what you have said. Help us to understand. Help us to take exactly what you want us to take from this today so that we can build our life upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, welcome to Mark 13, which uh, many scholars have said this is the most difficult chapter in Mark to understand. And so, you can tell why I was inclined to pray. I'm kind of turning my microphone a uh, little, I don't even know what this doohickey is called, this little plug-in thing, trying to get it nice and clear and crisp. Um, so, um, here we go. I'm going to read the first eight verses. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So this is Sermon 1 on chapter 13. We may have Sermon 2 next week, I'm not sure. Uh, But at least uh, Sermon 1 on Mark chapter uh, 13. In order to begin to understand this, I think um, we need to understand two things. One, what comes right before it, and it was the story that we read last week about um, Jesus's uh, criticism of the religious leaders and what their hearts were drawn to, um, money, um, acclaim, um, popularity, people thinking well of them. So what do our hearts love? We have to realize that. And then we have to realize some things about the temple, and that is um, this, the, the setting of when this disciple says, look at all these massive buildings, always talking about the Jewish temple. 
Um, we need to grasp the enormity of the Jewish temple. Herod the Great began rebuilding the temple in um, 19 B.C. And the outer courts, here's the dimensions. Imagine um, five football fields deep. So one football field, that's pretty deep. And then it went five football fields deep. And then it went six football fields wide. That's the outer court of the temple. So 30 football fields would fit inside the outer court of the temple. Uh, Yeah, lots. The answer is lots. Um, The walls of the temple. Some of the stones measured almost 40 feet long, and I think it was 12 feet tall and 18 feet wide. So, you know, the fifth wheel sitting outside of your neighbor's front yard on the parked at the curb, you know, that was like one of the stones of the temple walls. On top of the walls, the outer walls, were these, these just beautifully um, made covered walkways with all this ornate woodwork um, in, the, in the covered walkways. Herod the Great built it. Herod was an egomaniac. I mean, he was maniacal. He was an egomaniac. And, so, and he built the temple largely in tribute to himself, uh, not to God, but to himself. And so you can imagine the splendor of the temple, gold and silver and, and marble. Um, but just as much as the temple stood as a physical sign of splendor for the Jewish people, it was even more so a spiritual sign for the Jewish people. It was the location um, at which the Jews were to gain forgiveness of their sins as they participated in the, the complex um, system of animal and agricultural sacrifices. That's where they made those sacrifices at the temple to um, to you know to, to have forgiveness with God. And the temple was the location that the Jews knew this is where God lives. If I want to be in God's presence, I can go here. So imagine the source of security the temple was for the Jewish people. Every year, thousands of uh, of Jews that lived in the area of Judea would would travel um, annually to Jerusalem, to the temple, to participate in annual uh, religious festivals. Uh, One-tenth of our psalms, 15 of them, Psalms 120-134, are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Not Psalms of Ascent, not the smelly songs. They're the Psalms of Ascent, like you're traveling upward. And the Jewish people, as they traveled to Jerusalem for the religious festivals, they would sing these psalms or recite these psalms. Kind of, you know, back in the day, going to grandmothers and, you know, way back in the day, you're singing over the river and through the woods. Grandma's house would go, right? Well, they didn't sing that. They would sing these psalms of ascent because they're traveling up the mountains uh, uh, towards towards Jerusalem. Um, And you get a sense of, just what the Jewish people believed about the presence of God. Let me read a few of these Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 132, verse 14. Uh, God says, this is my resting place. Jerusalem, the temple, forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Psalm 122, 
Let us go up to the house of the Lord. Whose house? The Lord's house. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. And then my favorite, one of my favorites, Psalm 121, which says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Why am I lifting my eyes up to the hills for my help? Because I'm traveling upward towards Jerusalem and the temple to Mount Zion. So, Somewhat basic Bible study, you're reading the Old Testament, you see things like Mount Zion or Zion or Jerusalem, the temple. These locations often were used synonymously in in the Old Testament to describe God's resting place, where God lived. Jesus and his family, when Jesus was was a youngster, they they traveled up to, to make this annual pilgrimage from Nazareth. And you may recall the story of the 12-year-old Jesus. Um, when his parents lost track of him when they went to visit the temple. And they're, they're traveling home. I mean, it's a long journey back to Nazareth. And Jesus is, how many of you over here are 12? Any 12-year-olds? One. Okay, 12. Imagine our 12-year-old being left behind in Jerusalem. Families on the way back to Nazareth. It's kind of like a, from out of the movie Home Alone, you know, the parents are like, hey, where's Jesus? So well, I thought you kept track of Jesus. Well, I thought you were keeping track of Jesus. Come come to find out that it was cousin so-and-so who had said, yeah, I think Jesus is here, and, and no one knows where Jesus is. And they travel back to Jerusalem to find the 12-year-old Jesus, and where is he? He's in the temple. He was listening to and asking questions of the rabbis there. Because the temple was the center of religious life for the Jewish people. So the temple was massive physically, and it was even more massive spiritually for the Jews. So think about that. And then one day, uh, Jesus said these words to the Jews, and they would have been like throwing gasoline on a campfire. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they all thought, Jesus, have you lost your mind? Apparently you have, because it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll do it in three days? And how dare you even speak of such things? You don't go around messing with our temple. You know, there's, there's certain significant and sacred spaces and places where you just don't go around boldly saying things. You don't go in the Alamo and start shouting out, Santa Anna lives. You know, we don't do things like that. You don't go into the Bluebell Creamery in Bredham and say, Listeria everywhere. You don't. There are certain sacred spaces where you just, you don't go that boldly into them, right? And the same thing is with a temple. So think of the story. So Jesus said, all the stones are going to be turned over. Is he just being loose with his words? Is he, let's tarry everywhere, you know? No. He's being intentional and precise with his words. He's using his words to teach something very important to his disciples. 
Um, you know, Jesus could have said a lot of other things when that disciple said, look how beautiful it is. I mean, Jesus could have said, yeah, 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 you know, it, it's all right. He could have said that. He could have said, well, you know, looks can be deceiving. You know, I mean, something benign like that. But instead he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that temple that you love, it's going to be demolished, torn to the ground. And he's not just making a historical point. He's not making a prediction. He's not just making a prediction. Now, the temple was destroyed. It was leveled along with the city of Jerusalem in in 72 AD by the the Roman army. Um, But Jesus is just making this historical prediction. It's not this physical statement about the temple that he's, he's making. It's a spiritual point that Jesus is making about the destruction of the temple. And he's saying this, the temple... What's the spiritual point? The temple is no longer necessary. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself, isn't he? He is the fulfillment of the purpose of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. The temple built by Solomon was a, a place where God dwelt. You might remember the story of Solomon dedicating the temple. It says this long, elaborate prayer. Thank goodness you know, we're not praying like Solomon. It was probably hours longer. You know, what's in the Bible is, you know, looks like this. It probably went on longer than that. And after he finished his prayer, the fire of God came down out of heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, so much so that the priests had to leave the temple. They couldn't be in there. God so dwelled the temple. But after the coming of Jesus... Where did God dwell? In Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In order to be in the presence of God, you don't need to travel hundreds of miles, Jesus is pointing out. You don't have to travel hundreds of miles to be in the temple in order to be with God. Jesus says, here I am. (laughs) You just need me. And you don't have to travel 100 miles every year to offer sacrifices in the temple for your sins because in a matter of days, Jesus would be nailed to the cross and giving that once and for all atonement of sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins and all of our sins. And Jesus, in just a matter of weeks, was going to pour out his Spirit into all believers, his Holy Spirit, into our lives. And so the presence of God, notice throughout the Bible, it's moving from the temple to Jesus. And now inside everyone who believes in him, the presence of God. So the destruction of the temple was significant historically, and it was also significant theologically. Theologically, Jesus is saying, the temple is no longer necessary because I am its fulfillment. Everything that it represents, I am fulfilling for you. So I want to look at three things about our life with God that this says. Um, The first thing about our life with God, it says is this. Never make religious means into ends. Never make religious means into ends. 
So we've talked about just how important the temple was for the religious practices of the Jews. And in some ways, the temple was synonymous for religious faith for the Jews. I mean, you just couldn't think of being a faithfully practicing Jew with, without the, the temple. We just can't apply that thought to anything regarding our Christian faith. Um, and here's one reason why. Um, because uh, we have to remember that there is no space that is more sacred than others on the planet. God says, this world is mine. <laughs> not, just, not just church buildings are mine, but everything is mine. That's what God says. And so there's no one space, like the temple in the Old Testament, that was more sacred, or that is more sacred, than any other place. God baptizes every nook and cranny of this world with his presence. God is not any less present with you in your school classroom. He's not any less present with you in your work office than God is present with you right now in this church building. So just being in church, that is not the end of our Christian faith. Worship service may be a means to growing in your and expressing and living out your faith with Christ, but the ends is Christ. The ends, the end is Jesus. The end of our faith is a real relationship with the living God who is with you wherever you go. That's the end of our Christian faith. And, and that's true with the religious rituals of the Christian faith. And when, and when I say that, I mean rituals in, the, in the, just the best of terms. I'm not, not belittling religious rituals. I'm saying that in a positive way. Prayer, communion, worship. Um, these help us walk with Christ, grow in our walk with Christ. They are necessary in our walk with Christ. But they are not the ends themselves, right? Prayer is not the end itself. Prayer is how we walk in our relationship with Christ. Same with communion, same with worship. If we begin mindlessly going about these things thinking these things are that which makes us a Christian, then they've lost their point. They are means, not ends. They lead us to Jesus. Jesus is the end. Um, one reason I say that, I want everyone to know, Hope Church here, we believe that Jesus is our source, Jesus is our life, Jesus is our way, Jesus is the end of our Christian faith. Uh, another thing I think this says about our our walk with God is this. Looking for lasting hope in anything but Jesus is guaranteeing disappointment. Uh, many of the Jews consider the temple to be, their, their, be the ultimate of their religious faith. And about that, Jesus says, not one stone will be left standing. And one point of that is this. If the temple can fall... Almost anything can fall. Jesus gives an an exemption to that. If the temple will fall, almost anything will fall. Won't won't fall. Jesus, Jesus won't fall. His word, his word will not fall, will not fail. 
But there's a warning here. If you put your hope, your lasting hope, not just the, oh, you know, things that make us happy, but the lasting hope in anything other than Jesus and his word, you're going to be disappointed. So think about this, this conversation. Jesus tells his disciples uh, the temple is coming down. That would have been a shock. And so they ask, well, when is all this going to happen? And he doesn't tell them when. He doesn't say, uh, 10 years from now or 10 days from now. He doesn't say that. Uh, he begins describing turmoil. Wars, earthquakes, famines. What is he, if you have your Bible open, what is he, look at verse 8. I don't have this on the screen. What does Jesus call this turmoil in verse 8? Birth pains. What will they give birth to? And this is what makes Mark chapter 13 a pretty confusing chapter. Because Jesus doesn't just talk about the turmoil up to the year 72 when the temple in Jerusalem was going to come down. Jesus starts mixing in the turmoil that we will experience throughout human history leading up to his return. And one of the troubling things is that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the future. He doesn't say, um, you know, I'm just going to whisk you away and rescue you from all the turmoil. He doesn't say that. He points out something that I know you've experienced. This world that we live in is desperate for Jesus to come back. It's desperate for Jesus to come back. There have been way too many tears that have been shed and hearts that have been broken. We are desperate for Jesus to come back. And there are many things that we put a lot of stock in to bring us happiness and fulfillment. Uh, What do we look to? Good health? That's a good thing. Family? That's a good thing. Employment? That's a good thing. And those things can quickly go away. And and this, this chapter is just a reminder that we are creatures that are made for more than what this world can presently offer. We are made for love. You are made for love and fulfillment that lasts. And that's why our hearts can cry out the way that they do and grieve in this world. Jesus says, do not put your lasting hope in anything of this world. And if it's not in good health and good looks and good employment and good income and good friends and good family, if that's not where we're putting our lasting hope, then where in the world do we put our hope? And that leads us to the last point, our third point. Um, Keep a discerning eye on the present and a hopeful heart on the future. Discerning eye on the present, a hopeful heart on the future. And there's two commands that Jesus gives in verses 5 through 8. And the first one is this. Watch out that no one deceives you. And watch out there means have a discerning eye. Because there will be people, Jesus says, who will claim to be the Messiah, who will claim to be me, some version of me. And we know that happened historically. You just have to turn to the book of Acts and we find out that there are these people that, that, that came up and promised to be the Messiah and they gained hundreds of people following them. And uh, 
and and what happened is the would-be messiahs in the end they were killed and all the, their followers just kind of disbanded and and left um, and and that happens today too I mean sure it happens in the kind of the crazy the David Koresh kind of way you know that makes the news headlines that happens occasionally uh, but in more subtle ways people make up all kinds of stuff to serve their desires and they construct a way of practicing religious faith that serves their desires. And people will make some things that are not good make them seem good, and some things that are really good make them seem bad. Um, and they distort words and twist words, and they're doing it all to um, advantage themselves in some way. Jesus says, do not be deceived. Another way people can deceive, um, or at least unintentionally mislead or at least cause some alarm. Another way is by claiming they know when Jesus will return. And have you you seen one of those people or know one of those people? Let's say, pack your bags because sell your house, whatever, because Jesus is coming next year. Um, And I know that this study of when Jesus will return, that's, that's a... That could be a really popular study for Christians. And if that is one of the things that you like to study, okay, great. I mean, no, no problems, right? Um, I mean, maybe you're, you may have read many, many, many books and pages on that, looked at many, many, many charts and studied many, many events in the Middle East, you know, stuff like that. And, okay, that you may be very confident or know someone who is very confident that we are in the last days. Well, I want to say a couple things about this. One, um, one thought about this, when you hear someone say, we're in the last days, well, one thought is, yes, we are. Um, ever since the resurrection, this is what the Bible says, ever since the resurrection, we've been living in the last days. Um, and two, there... We can look at several scriptures on this, but let me point to two. Uh, one is First Peter chapter one verse twenty, that says uh, he was chosen before the creation of the world. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these in these last times for your sake. Uh, it's talking about two thousand years ago. Um, we've been living in the last days for two thousand years. Acts chapter two verse seventeen is kind of talking about what the prophet Joel says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. people." And that is not some future prediction that has not yet happened. That is talking about Pentecost Sunday after Jesus was resurrected where God poured out his spirit on those who believed in Christ. Those are the last days. We can look at 1 John, we can look at Hebrews, find similar statements. Today, these are the last days. Um, Ever since the resurrection, ever since God has poured out his Holy Spirit, we have been living in the last days. Now, anyone who says we are at the end of the last days, they're just guessing. (laughs) They're just guessing. When the disciples asked Jesus, when will this all happen? You know, he talks about the turmoil. And he actually, sooner or later, he addresses to some degree, their question of when it will happen. But you don't get to that, to that until um, 
uh, way down to verse 32 of, cha- of Mark chapter 13. Do you know what Jesus says about when it will happen? No, no, no. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. They don't know. Nor the Son. He's talking about himself. But only the Father. So, I mean, I look at that verse and I say, can anything be as clear as that as we won't know? You won't know. Angels won't know. I won't know. You won't know. If Jesus himself did not know, Maybe Jesus knows now, but at this time when he's speaking, he didn't know. If Jesus didn't know back then, we will not know now. So one thing Jesus says is don't be deceived. And the second command that he gives in these these passages, um, 5 through 8, is do not be alarmed. Don't be deceived, but don't be alarmed. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus took this opportunity to, to comment on the, the, the destruction, the absolute destruction of, like, the Jewish people's prize, the temple, um, to say, don't be alarmed. You know, that destruction that happened leading up to the temple, that destruction is happening and has happened throughout human history. It's happening today. We're living in a world that is crying out for redemption this is very similar to when the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Um, Roman, uh, Paul writes about this in Romans 8. He says, we know that the world, the whole creation, has been groaning as in the, what does he say, the pains of childbirth, labor pains, right up to the present time. Creation is groaning and waiting to be liberated from its bondage decay. It's saying, please, Jesus, we are ready for you to come back. Now, we are living in the age of entropy. You know entropy? You remember entropy from physics or chemistry or whenever we learn about entropy? Maybe you don't remember entropy. Entropy, that, that law that states that generally the amount of disorder in the universe is increasing and that things generally are breaking down. That's what stuff does. It breaks down. That's what entropy says. It's a really cheerful law. Things break down. Living things die. And that's ultimately why anything we look for lasting hope in, other than Jesus, will disappoint your physical or cognitive abilities. Break down. Thank you, Entropy. Um, And sooner or later, your company says, Hey, uh, have you thought about retirement? Now may be a good time. Uh, your health breaks down. You're not able to climb those mountains like you used to. Your good looks get interrupted by wrinkles and folds and things like that. Um, your family members that love you and you love them, and the same thing is happening to them, right? Entropy. All things will give out except for one person, Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm coming back, and I'm setting everything right. So don't be alarmed. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we have this incredible promise. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? Graciously give us all things. All things? Really? Really, God? Will you give us all things? Listen, a promise of that magnitude does not come cheaply. A promise of that magnitude only comes through real blood, sweat, and tears. And that's what Jesus offered up to give us that promise. His blood, his sweat, his tears, his life. See, Jesus does not offer short-term, cheap promises like, life's going to be so easy that you'll never need to put your faith or your trust in God. That's a, that's a sh- short-term, cheap promise. And Jesus doesn't make promises like that. He makes promises like Romans 8.32. You will receive all things through Christ. The promises of Jesus are long-term and immensely deep. It's the promise that everything that your hearts really long for, that those things will last. Not because we secure them. We can't secure them. We try to secure them. We try to secure love that lasts. We try to exercise good health ourselves, and we tell our spouses, boy, let's start exercising because I want you around for a while. We try to secure those things. We, we try to secure good mental health. You know, I started doing crossword puzzles the other day. I'm like, hey, mental health, right? Keeps you going. And sooner or later, our minds break down. You are meant for physical work that lasts instead of breaking down over time. We can't secure these things that our hearts desire. So Jesus says, I will secure them for you. I will give up my life. I will die. And I will come back and bring all of this with you. One final thought on how he does this. Uh, Kickstart, our, our youth program, happens right before the worship service. We are talking today about our hope. Someone made the, this great point about heaven. I know I'm going there. I might not know exactly what it's going to be like, but I know I'm going there, and there's hope in that. Jesus helps us to understand a little bit what heaven will be like when he comes back. Because when he comes back, what is he doing? He's affirming this world that God has created. He says, I'm coming back there. I'm not, I'm not taking you out of there. I'm coming back there. So that you can have all things. So that you can have relationships that do not end. So that you can have meaningful work that lasts. As we know what the Bible says, that we will reign with God forever and ever. As Jesus says, I'm coming back here, and I'm bringing all things, all hopes, all desires, all good things with me for you. Well, that's enough for today. Um, If you are looking at life and if you're afraid, Turn to Jesus Christ because he's the one who gave up his life for you so that you could have him and life. And you can have Jesus 
today. You can hear his call today and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I receive the life that you want to give me today. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Lord Jesus, you gave up all so that we could have all. You gave up your life so that we could have your life, so that we could have your life living in us. So that when we're going through trouble and turmoil, we can know we're not going alone, but you are with us to give us strength and peace. And Lord Jesus, we say yes to that. We need your peace. We need your life. We need to know that you are our Savior, that you died on the cross for our sins, that there's nothing that can separate us from you because you've, you've taken care of the, the barrier of our sins and mistakes and You said, I've washed them clean. They're gone. You don't have to worry about them interrupting our life with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to not be deceived. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to put our hope, our lasting hope, in you. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.